Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey friends, uh, my name is Andre and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast. This is a podcast about everything tennis, uh, various topics from recreational to pro. And today is a, is a really, really cool, special day for me, for this podcast. And uh, we have um, Vansh is coming back here and uh, you, you guys know him, writer at um, Crack It Rackets and Tennis Fanatic. And the special guest that we have today, uh, a person that... <laughs> has so much experience in the game and so much to bring in. And I'm sure that this time is going to be amazing um, with him around. And uh, this guy is Steve Flink, and he is a tennis journalist and writer from for a very, very long time writing about tennis, at least about four or five decades. And he wrote for World Tennis Magazine, Tennis Week and Tennis Channel. He's a Hall of Famer. Um, that's right, the same one that has uh, in in, um, in Newport, and he's also a tennis historian who who wrote also two reputable monographs: the great tennis matches of the 20th century and the greatest tennis matches of all time. And he has a third book coming out really soon about uh, Preet Sampras, one of my favorite tennis players of uh, of all time in the 90s. And the book's called Pete Sampras: Greatness Revised, and it's coming out really soon. Um, hi, Steve, how are you doing? Good. Let me just give you, if you don't mind, it's actually the Pete Sampras greatness revisited. Revisited. I actually have written correctly. Yeah. No, but, uh, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, great, great mm. to be with you. Delighted to be on the podcast. Amazing. And uh, when is it coming out? That book exactly. First of September is the official release Amazing. date. So during the U.S. Open, good good timing because that's the 30th anniversary of his becoming the youngest man ever at 19 years and. 28 days old back in 1990 when he won his first of five U.S. Opens. That's great. And Vansh, how's it going? Great. Uh, Thanks again, Andre, for having me here. And today is a really special episode and absolutely delighted that we have one of my favorite all-time historians and someone who I look up to immensely and I'm fortunate to be discussing the greatest seasons in the Open era. Mm. Cool. And yeah, for the audience, the little thing is I'm also really delighted to be here and I might be a little nervous. You might notice that in my voice a few times from time to time. Um, so um, let's let's get this started. Um, first of all, like it's it's the best seasons of all time. It's We're not really d- diving into um, as much of like how impressive their careers entirely were, but like really focusing on a single season. And uh, there are several incredible players uh also specifically speaking from the atp tour hopefully at some point we're gonna uh, be able to i'm gonna get to be doing the wta as well which has incredible players um of all time as well um but 
we're gonna be touching on uh, specific specific players in specific seasons. I'm just gonna name them out here like immediately, so that you know. Um, we're gonna be talking about Villas, uh, Guillermo Villas, 1977 season, uh, John McEnroe. 1984 season, Andre Agassi 1999 season, and Roger Federer 2006 season, uh, with the help of uh, Vansh and um, Steve. And let's start with with Vilas. So, I guess just giving some context, because of uh, maybe for the younger audiences. So, what was the game like back in uh, in the 70s, in the late 70s? For maybe. Uh, Steve, who has a little bit more experience on that one. Well, there's a lot of diversity in the game at that time. I mean, you, 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 you had Connors, who was really in the midst of a five years in a row at number one, and he was a great all-court player, hit the ball flat off both sides. Borg had emerged with in, in kind of a really sort of a transformational figure in the game with his heavy topspin and his two-handed backhand. Connors with the two-hander as well, but more conventional straight back, hit straight through the ball. Bjorn had all that loop so you had Borg and Connors in the forefront John Newcomb in the mid-70s was still a great uh from Australia the classic servant volley there were a lot of great players at that time with different playing styles but I think that Vila sort of emerged in this he was a rival of Borg's and and he always had to deal with the specter of Borg which was not easy because they played the game in such a similar way with heavy topspin on both sides and Borg was just almost always better at it. So that, that he Borg was something of a nemesis for Vilas, but Vilas, you know, by the time we're talking about with the 77 season, had done some hard work on his game, and he's from Argentina, but he developed a great slice backhand, had a nice temperament, very driven, and this was really the sort of the culmination of his career in 77. Nice. Um, so I guess, Vansh, uh, you have something to add there? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so just more specifically on, on Vilas, I mean, a lot of people talk about his clay court resume and his clay court uh, all-time records. And, you know, his clay court CV is is absolutely remarkable, especially when, especially uh, we're talking about this season in particular in 1977, where he played one of the most dominant French Opens, certainly that I can recall in the in the Open era. Is that, would that be fair to say? That's very but that's very fair to say. And, of course, you know, to, to beat Gottfried, love three and love in the final was sort of proof of what you're saying. And he was really on. The draw was right for him. It wasn't one of the tougher fields he had to deal with in, in various ways. But the way that Vilas was playing that year, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered much unless he'd had to face Bork. He, I don't think he was going to lose to anybody else at Roland Garros, for instance. And then it was really Roland Garros that, launched him through the season uh, he, he wanted that title so badly and and he got it and then he just kept going right through the summers and and won the u.s open when it was also on clay it was actually technically hard true which is a different is a great green comp is very similar to, okay. to clay comes under the category clay and he that was a big win for him that sort of capped it all off when he beat connors in the u.s open final because he was really unbeaten through that whole stretch and he won that 44 matches in a row, 46 in a row. It was really unstoppable from the French through the U.S. Opens and two majors and just a phenomenal season all around and well-deserved given the work that he put in to, to sort of set that path ahead. A little bit more about uh, Vilas. I just wanted to uh, 
you know, ask Steve about this. Since he grew up, uh, obviously you mentioned his his record over Connors was a little bit better than certainly than it was against Borg. He certainly matched up, seemed to match up better than better against Connors. But just a little bit more about like kind of their public image and persona during these times. Um, how did how did fans really identify with Vilas during this uh, during his prime period in '77? Let's say compared to you know, maybe the ice-cold Bjorn or Connors, who definitely wore his heart on his sleeve, but seemed to, but was, you know, nasty at times on the court and, you know, just different reputations. How would how would you kind of compare those? He was closer. It's a good question. He's closer to Borg than he was to Connors in the sense of how he comported himself. He <laughs> had some, he, there was a little bit more personality, a little bit more uh, dynamic qualities, but he, he was very... Uh, well behaved on the court and no no skirm, no no nonsense kind of a guy very philosophical maybe a deeper thinker than Bjorn known for being a poet and and uh, maybe sometimes that got in his way maybe he thought too much but I think he was known as a really good guy the problem he had was uh, I mean Borg was immensely popular all of everywhere he went and right. Connors certainly in the states was very popular by then by seventy seven but I will say to get to the heart of your question, that when he came from behind to defeat Connors in the 77 U.S. Open final after dropping the first set 6-2 and eventually winning 6-love in the fourth, there were a lot of Latin Americans in the crowd. He got a lot of crowd support uh, for what was probably the biggest uh, biggest tournament of his career in many, many ways, to win the Open. And then as he beat Jimmy again, that gets back to your point about the matchup, he actually beat him in Madison Square Garden the end of that season mm. and in the round robin, which was a, a remarkable win to beat Jimmy up in, indoors. Connors was maybe even more heavily favored, I think, to beat him there than he was at the open because they were still on the clay, still on the hard at Forest Hills. But to beat him in Madison Square Garden in those conditions in a great three-set match, that, that, was, that, that, was, that was a staggering feat on his part and proof that he could play he wasn't strictly a clay court player. He'd shown us that before, but it was nice that he showcased it at the very end of that 77 season. Incredibly. He also won uh, 16 titles that year and played an incredible 150 matches. He went 136 and 14, uh, which was his record. And you mentioned the grass. Um, there was, because back then the Australian Open in 77 was played at the beginning of the year, and he'd made the final that year, losing to Roscoe Tanner, 3-3 and 3 in the final. And uh, he also, uh, you mentioned those streaks that he had kind of at the end of the season, which was after Wimbledon when he lost to Billy Martin in the third round. Yeah, and, exactly. That yeah, was the yeah. post-Roland Garros. When Wimbledon was, it was, it was just a blip on the, on the screen. It really didn't mean much because he just barreled through the summer after that. He wasn't ready to play on, uh, uh, he could play on grass. We saw that at the Masters a few years earlier in 74, but he... Uh, it, w it was a pretty tough turnaround. Borg managed to, three years in a row from 78 through 80, managed to pull off that Roland Garros-Wimbledon double back-to-back, -back, which is awfully hard to do and later accomplished by Federer and Nadal, but not easy in the least. But Vilas was becoming more versatile. And I think that despite the fact that Borg beat him handily in the semifinals of that Masters, the fact that he could beat Jimmy indoors, was it, it, it just was sort of, the ice and the cake for a great season. And I was at the time working at World Tennis Magazine and our rankings were pretty prestigious at the time. The ATP official rankings were 
not as highly regarded back then Nate, because it was they were still relatively new. They'd only started in 73. And we gave Vilas the number one ranking. Our panel of experts gave it to him. And the next day we went over to his hotel and he posed with a T-shirt that said number one. And it really meant a lot to him. And then in the ensuing years and more recently, when they kind of delved back into the ATP records, it was discovered that it appeared to be a mistake somewhere along the line. They didn't put the rankings out every week as planned. And Vila should have at some point, he really should have ended 77 at number one, frankly. But at the very least, the very least, he should have had that number one ranking somewhere along the line. And he's never had the satisfaction of that. But our, the, the, what we did at World Tennis, I'm kind of proud of the fact that we did that because he uh, he, he was the worthiest. He, Borg had a great year, but Vilas had a better one. Yeah, I, I, that was actually one of the questions that I had. So, um, and you, you basically already answered, but like just to develop a little bit on the the, the ranking systems, because from, he he ended up uh, finished the the year at world number two, and yeah. the and the ATP ranking is still today. It it doesn't show the the, the rankings that you guys gave him. It, it only shows the ATP one. So you'd have to search a little further than the the official website. Um, but it's. Uh, I've I've read a couple uh, articles and people expressing their opinions on how he actually deserved that that ranking. And uh, just could you just develop a little bit more on just the, the ranking systems? How did that work in that time? Why exactly did he didn't get the number one? And you know, well, he didn't get it. What happened was, as I was, I was as I was saying, he there appeared to be some weeks where they should have put out the ranking and didn't. Now it's automatic in these days. Yeah. I mean, it's Right now we're on hold because of the pandemic. But leave that aside. The yeah. ATP rankings are officially released every single week, or in the case of the majors, they wait for the two weeks to com be completed. So, But for some reason, there were a couple where they, they didn't get around to doing it. And and it got, some of the historians who looked into this are convinced that he would have achieved it somewhere along the line had, mm -hmm. had they not missed it. That was an unfortunate thing because the ATP is very professional. They've, you know, in the more modern times, they've done a fantastic job with their rankings and with the re releasing of the rankings and, and all the different scenarios for what it would take a particular player to do in a given year to be number one. But Vilas, uh, was, was, it was very unfortunate for him that he never had the, the satisfaction of seeing that. Now, similarly, among the women, At one time, the WTA had lost track of the fact that Gulagang, Yvonne Gulagang in 1976, yeah. had reached number one. And that one of their stars there who worked for the WTA, a guy named John Dolan, dug into it and found, I think he found it on paper, but he found the evidence that Yvonne had been at number one, which we all knew at the time. But they didn't have an official record of it for a long time, and he uncovered it. So at least in Gulagang's case, she had the satisfaction of an official number one next to her name uh, for historical purposes. Vilas does not have that, which is sad because I, it wasn't just our magazine, but other experts yeah. at the time uh, clearly believed that he deserved it. Yeah. And maybe just kind of uh, one of the things that interests me the most about Vilas, uh, especially as a South American, I would say, is uh, his, his clay um, prowess. He, he was so good on clay. I think he has the most matches won on clay ever at 600 and something. And if you if you go back to compare, like you mentioned a little bit of um, the uh, the double Roland Garros Wimbledon and coming back to a little bit more uh, present times in the 2000 Nadal, 2008 Nadal season, how how hard is it to, to, to do that? And I, I think 
because Vilas wasn't able to do said it was a blip. Um, but how hard exactly would you would you say it is to to actually do that? And do you think that is something that is a little bit of a stain on that season of his? Not really. No, not really. I would say this. So I think it was harder then. It's what makes it all the more remarkable that Borg could, for three straight years from 78 through 80, win them both. Because there, there was more of a discrepancy, there was more of a speed difference back then. The courts were faster. The grass was different than it is now. So it was a harder turnaround. It was harder to make the surface transition than it is now. Uh, the gra- I mean, the grass is, is slower, and I, I think the players, it's easier for them to adapt. It was a great achievement for Nadal and Federer to do it, but it, what it took for Borg to do it was was monumental. And Vilas just didn't quite have the, I think he was probably just, it was just probably more of an emotional letdown because he did have a, he did sweep through the French. So I don't think physically he killed himself that tournament the way he normally might at Roland Garros. But the court, the court, the changing conditions and the quicker grass that made it pretty hard for him and left him vulnerable uh, for sure uh, on the, on the quicker courts. Yeah, I mean, speaking of speaking of adapting, I think, uh, well, two things actually. So we mentioned the French Open, and I know that he lost to Gottfried uh, twice prior to that French Open final. He Gottfried got him in the final of Palm Springs and you know what? Baltimore, and they weren't on clay. But you know, how did he manage to produce one of the most one-sided finals? You know, losing just three games. Since, well, yeah. Brian Gottfried is a guy I know well, and he's a great guy. He'd be the first to admit that he was pretty pleased to just find himself in the finals of the uh, the French Open. He was a better better player on grass, where he got to the semis of Wimbledon and hard courts, where he did really well at the U.S. Open. Brian was not expected to be in that final, and he just was outclassed. It was a matchup problem. He he just was not capable of staying uh, Guillermo from the from the backcourt in any way. And he had to look for ways to attack. And then he was just playing right into Vilas's hands then as well. So I think that was really a matchup thing more than anything else. Both players knew when they walked on the court what was going to happen. Right. And then the most... Uh, I don't mean that Gottfried had given up or he was throwing in the towel or that he wasn't going to try. He just knew what he was up against. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. There, that happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and in the U.S. Open final as well, I mean, Connors had uh, had Vilas there because he took the first set 6-2 and uh, you know it was a it was one of Vilas's greatest triumphs certainly I believe to come back and you know with he totally had Connors on his heels I believe he changed tactics after that first set and uh, you know what do you think in your opinion what 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 made the difference in that in that final and how was Vilas able to kind of turn that around well it's uh, so often it's case when you're when you split the first two sets in a best of five set final that third set is critical and connor's had set points he could well have gotten himself up two sets to one and been in the driver's seat when that set got away and and vilas won it uh jimmy i think he it was a little deflated and he didn't quit he played hard but vilas really really played a magnificent form and he didn't miss much and by then you know he had the crowd he, he just sensed that he, he was that this was going to be his day. I think it would have been very different because he'd already lost the first set decisively. Comes back and win the second. If he then drops the third, I think it would have been very hard for him to turn it around and win two in a row against Connors at that stage. So it all swung. The pendulum swung late in the third set back to Vilas after he recovered from set points down. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that he was hitting a lot of slice approaches yes. and 
really testing yeah. Connors' ability to generate pace off of both, uh, off both sides. Right way to play, Jimmy. You're absolutely right. And, the, and sometimes he'd slice and come in on his forehand, and Jimmy was more comfortable passing off his backhand, and that worked. And, yes, you tried to give him low balls, not much pace, make Jimmy generate and make him dig out the low ball. Because Connors did not really hit with it. He, he was essentially a flat ball hitter. So he really never hit with any pronounced topspin off his forehand side or the back end. And therefore, that slice of Velas's was particularly effective against Connors. But it, it was a bitter defeat for Connors because there was a controversy about the match point. There was no way Velas was going to lose. But Connors thought his last shot was in. There was some doubt about whether the whether he'd won the point or not. But the, there was no call. And, and there was bedlam. And suddenly every, there were all these people on the court. And Connors was looking. Got, almost got in a scuffle with a photographer, and it was, and he later said the next day, as far as I'm concerned, the match is not over, which seems silly to some people because considering the Vilas was up five, love in the four, that was the only unfortunate thing about it. Vilas had played so beautifully to put himself in this commanding position. You wish it could have ended on a on a more normal note, so that you you didn't have that minor controversy to 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 stay in the occasion, which it did. Only in a minor way. And uh, I guess, like, uh, since we're speaking of uh, controversies, I guess we can like start moving moving on. Like, do you guys have anything else to that you'd like you guys like to add about Villas 1997, or we could maybe start moving on to McEnroe 1984. Sure, let's go. Well, let, I, I'm happy to move on to McEnroe. Mm, yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So. I guess we can we can start with the obvious. It's something that popped out in a lot of people's TV screens when uh, Djokovic was winning in 2011. The, that winning streak. Uh, what can we say a little bit about that? How can we um, talk about that a little bit more? And this uh, starting the 1984. 42 matches in a row, right? Uh, yeah. Actually, in actually 39, because Djokovic eventually broke him, it broke his record in 2011. But the main point was he didn't lose. The similarity, fascinating similarity between McEnroe's and Djokovic's seasons, 84 and then 2011, is neither one lost prior to the French. To the and French. then John goes French and has, has, we can talk in more depth about it, but he loses after going up two sets of love against love. And that's his first loss of the whole year. One of only three losses in the entire campaign. He won 82 out of 85 matches, so it's a phenomenal season. And and yet, he lost in Paris. And Djokovic, kind of similar. He hasn't lost. He wins 41 matches in a row uh, leading up to his loss to Federer in the semis of the French. And there, that was kind of a little bit of bad luck for Djokovic because he, he'd had about four days off. You know, he'd got a default in the fourth round. He, he had all these Days off leading up to the Federer match, and he and he was uneven and rusty, and it went over two days. And Federer played brilliantly to beat him, no doubt about it. But it was tough luck for Djokovic. But with John, he was just uh, what was remarkable about it is he had a bunch of clay court wins. It started off indoors in Philly that year, and he just kept going. And a lot of these were clay court wins, and he's he, he's knocking off Lendl, who was his the who in, in many eyes was the best clay court player in the world at the time. And it just didn't seem no matter what the surface was, McEnroe was destroying everybody. He was playing fast court tennis on slower courts. That's what made, to me, his performance at not only Roland Garros, but the other clay court tournaments so special, is that he didn't seem to compromise much. He'd attack guys and even come in on their, 
occasionally on their first serves, almost always on their second. He just was attacking relentlessly, but not missing much off the ground either. It was by far his best season ever in pro tennis, far, far and away. But the nightmare for him was that he had to have one of the three losses. I mean, one of the, he had lost to VJ Armitage in the summer in Cincinnati, and he lost to Sundstrom in the finals of the Davis Cup. Okay. The, v- the VJ match, I don't think he really cared that it happened. It was probably good for him to lose a match at that stage, but to lose to Lendl in Paris from the position he was in, he talks about it to this day. I would only want to add one comment about that. McEnroe, it's always just looked at only from McEnroe's standpoint, that he's up two sets to love and he wins the first two, three and two, and he looks like he's galloping toward a straight set win. And Lendl came back and beat him four, five and five, those last three sets. And I think Lendl deserves more credit. Lendl had never won a major. Lendl had been in four finals before that. It's similar to Andy Murray before he finally won the U.S. Open in 2012. Very similar in that Lendl had that label being pinned on him. Why can't you win a major? So he finally wins a major in in dramatic fashion from two sets down and also down 4-2 in the fourth set. He was in real danger. And And all everybody wants to talk about is what happened to McEnroe. It, everybody was only looking at it from the standpoint of McEnroe. I think he, I think Lendl's comeback was spectacular, and I don't think that McEnroe should have to take as much blame. Or, And I think Lendl should have been, there should have been more plaudits for Lendl for what he managed to do to turn that match around. Yes. Yeah, I, I guess like in, in that regard, it's, it's kind of... Um... McEnroe, obviously, people probably talk about it most be- uh, most because it's it's it was just as unbelievable, I guess, like when I was watching 2011 and I saw uh, him going out to Federer in four. It just seemed like it just seemed like the day was not going to come that he was going to lose, and that's probably what feels so astounding about this this defeat because being two sets to love up and you you get to lose to a guy who has never won a major, it just it just seemed at that moment that that was impossible to happen. Well, it's true, but of course, we all knew how great Lendl was. We knew what he'd done in 82 yeah. and 83 of the years when he got to the U.S. Open finals, and he lost the 83 Australian to Vlander, which is a little surprising, too, in some ways. So we knew how, how great he was, but... Yeah. It, and Lendl had already... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so, sorry. You know, Lendl had already gotten to number one and yeah. had won 39 titles prior to oh, getting mm. to that final. He was a seasoned yeah. professional. Absolutely. And we all thought, many of us thought after he beat McEnroe in the 82 semis of the Open that he was going to win that. And then Connors beat him in four. And then the next year we thought, okay, he'll do it now. Connors beat him in four again. So he'd been knocking on the door. And yes, he won all those other titles. But his time was going to come. It just nobody was really planning for it to happen in the fashion that it did from two sets down against somebody who'd been beating him regularly all season long. So it was... Mm. It was tough for McEnroe, no doubt about it. But yeah. it, it, it was also a really, really a remarkable performance from Lendl in the way he he turned it into a more a war of attrition. He did wear. I think he wore him down physically a little bit, and then some of McEnroe's outbursts, some of the some, the volatility, may have also sapped him of a little energy because he didn't have as much spring in his step those last that last last couple of sets, despite the fact that they were so close. So many times. That, that again is something to say to be said. In Lendl's favor, and not so much that Mac- McEnroe did not collapse and go down six-two in the fifth. You know, he yeah. was up four-two in the fourth, and he lost that seven-five. And then the fifth was 
really tight all the way until he finally lost at 7-5 in the fifth. So you really can't. And McEnroe had break points at three all in the fifth. So it really was he fought hard, but eventually got outplayed by a guy who really was a better clay court player than he was. What did you think about the the match point, the forehand inside out volley put away? Yeah, he had the court open, no doubt about it. But that's pressure when you're serving match point down and, and you know. You, you, serving you, second. You, what's that? Serving second in the fifth as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Serving from behind is never easy in the fifth. So he felt the pressure knowing if he doesn't make the volley, the match is over. Right. So I, it, But it was unfortunate for him. Only I, All I'll say is this. It's not like some of the other guys, though, who won all the other majors. Uh, at that time, McEnroe had barely, hardly gone to the Australia. He never, never played. He, 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 he lost in '83 to Vlander. He just didn't tend to make that trip. He barely played the Australia in his career. He stayed away from it because it was at the end of the year during right. his prime, and he came back again when he got disqualified in the '90s. But it was too late, and I just think so. He was always going to have no Australian on his record. But he sure would have loved to have had that one French just to add that to the, you know, the three Wimbledon's and four U.S. to round out his record. It would have been a nice thing for him to have because Connors was never able to win the French. And Pete Sampras was never able to win. And McEnroe was, very, you know, agonizingly close. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you mentioned we, we talked a lot about Lendl. But obviously some of his statistics in 1984, I mean, he had 24 top 10 wins that year which, by the way, is the second most in the Open era, tied with uh, Nadal and Djokovic, who each had 24 top 10 wins in 2013. And uh, he went 6-0 against Connors and 6-1 and against Lendl, and that one loss was obviously the most crushing. And there's another example of the parallels between, uh, you know, uh, Djokovic and McEnroe in their great seasons of 84 and, and 2011, is that you look at the record that Djokovic had, in, and he was 6-0 and against Nadal that year, and that included wins over Rafa and the Wimbledon U.S. Open Finals a couple of times on the clay, big wins, and then 4-1 and against Federer. So it, it, it's really reminiscent of, of what McEnroe was doing against his top competition like Lendl and Connors back in, in uh, 1984. And the domination is remarkable in both cases. Absolutely, and then you also mentioned... Yeah, you mentioned six and one against Lendl. Um, I thought it was an incredible mental feat and incredible that he was able to defeat Lendl handedly in the U.S. Open final that year in straight sets, especially coming off of this crushing defeat at the French. That was interesting because what happened there was that McEnroe had what what made it more remarkable was. Lendl played the opening men's semifinal. That was the great Super Saturday that many of us thought could not be surpassed. But Lendl saved a match point and had a grueling match against Pat Cash in the semis and mm. got through it in five. And then and then the women's final was Navratilova and Everett and a great three-setter. And we then we come to McEnroe and Connors, who ended somewhere, I think, 11-16 in the evening, five more sets. But here's McEnroe with a lot less rest time than Lendl had. But as it turned out, Lendl was a little bit more fragile physically than he was. And John played a, a great match to, to take him apart in straight sets. I don't think either one of them were feeling that great. Those were the days when you had no day off. And thankfully, that's all been changed. But he also was just confident. You know, the beating Connors in five sets, yeah, it was it was very uh, uplifting to him, I guess. And I just think he felt at that point he had he had enough left in the tank to and he played. He really served and volleyed 
uh, brilliantly against against Lendl. Now a year later, Ivan turned the tables and beat John in straight sets in the '85 U.S. Open final. But let, we need to stay on topic here. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no problem. <clears throat> so, I guess uh, we 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 did a, the the winning streak a bit, but like um. It's it's an it's a whole season, and if he just lost there and he had like a terrible obviously obviously we know he didn't have a terrible end of the season post French Open, but like what what are some other uh, of his impressive things in the season that are not necessarily as talked about as the the great streak, you would say. The final. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was gonna say the the final of Wimbledon when he crushed Connors, um, like one two and two. It was the best. Hit. That Wimbledon final is probably the best match he's ever played. <laughs> Connors two years earlier had had beaten McEnroe in five sets, and this one figured to be another close match too. And if you think about how, only a few months later they go five at the U.S. Open. But what McEnroe did to Connors on the center court that day was just it was breathtaking. It, it, I, 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 Jimmy had he had himself destroyed Ken Rosewell on the same court, of course, ten years earlier you know, to, to win his first Wimbledon. And he had been pretty devastating to beat Rosewell 1-1-4, and four, but what McEnroe did to him was just, it was devastating. And it says a lot for Connors that he did make it so close again at the U.S. Open later in the year. But McEnroe, just everything he touched turned to gold that that day in the Wimbledon final. I never saw him play a better match. Might, maybe occasionally the WCT finals or the Masters, but considering what the occasion was and who the opponent was and that that same guy had beaten him in the finals two years earlier. It was it was it was it was pretty dazzling stuff for McEnroe. And I think he would say, certainly if you asked him about that particular year, he didn't play a better match in 1984. Yeah, I mean, many people talk about McEnroe in 1984, and today it's one of the most talked about seasons. And you know, he was only 25, and uh, you know, he never won another Slam after that. And he got to just one other Grand Slam final. And, you know, he did have a brief resurgence in 92 when I, he played the semis against Agassi that yeah, year. True. But, um, I mean, true. why do you think uh, after 25 he... Yeah, I, we would not, none of us would have believed it. Back at that time, of course, it's such a contrast from this era now where you're, you're seeing Federer 39 and he's probably going to play until he's 41 mm-hmm. if we're lucky and and we'll see how long the rafa and novak go but they'll probably go into their i think novak will go into his late 30s and yeah. rafa might get past 35 but at that, that time you tended to think of 25 as the absolute peak however nobody thought you you certainly thought he could play top flight up till 30 and win a bunch more majors but what happened is the next year is when he lost that U.S. Open final to Lendl. That was that was a crushing blow in its way. And then the end of that year, he lost to Brad Gilbert at the Masters and decided to take six months off. Mm-hmm. And he was really never the same after the six months off. Came back, he had a pretty good 89 when he got back into the top five and he won Dallas over Lendl, but he was never really the same McEnroe. And I think if he had it to do over again, he, he wouldn't have taken the six-month hiatus. He would have tried to just stick with it and keep playing. And I think that, that that sort of changed him forever. You know, speaking more about McEnroe, just in general today, because he's around the tennis scenes a lot, and he's a commentator, obviously, for NBC and ESPN, and, you know, very polarizing figure. And obviously, people, casual fans, think of McEnroe, and they think of his angry out, outbursts and his abuse of rackets and umpires. But, I mean, how much... How do you think fans and people should view him today and, you know, this season in particular? Because, 
you know, is his genius on the court and some of his all-court game, do you think that's maybe underrated or, you know, slightly overshadowed by the other parts of his personality? I think the fact that he's still so visible as a commentator does make people, I suspect there are a lot of people in your age bracket, uh, and people in their 20s and 30s that didn't get a chance to really see him play in his prime that go back and watch on YouTube now. I have to believe that because there's a fascination with him and he's so visible. And and uh, that's not true of all the other ex-greats. So yeah. I, I, I think that probably helps. But there's no doubt he was a genius. There's no doubt we haven't seen anybody play quite like him. You know, the, the deft touch and the, 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 the way he set up the, the, the stance on his serve and, and what he could do on the overhead. They were, he was spectacular at the net. And, and I think that I, I hope that a lot of young people are going back to see that because he, he really was a, an artist. He was an artist on a tennis court, no doubt about that. And it's too bad that the second half of his 20s, it didn't work out nearly as well as the first half. Should have lasted longer at his at the top of his game. I, I wish he had. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a... Um, I started I started watching sort of because of my dad used to watch uh, Borg, and Borg was his biggest um, idol. And he, he was pretty sad when he lost the, the final in uh, 1981 <laughs> uh, to, to McEnroe. It was basically one of the most... Um, intense matches i guess of all time not not the 81 but the 80 but there was also a big big turning point uh, i guess 81 81 was a big turning point no doubt about it yeah exactly Morgan won five in a row so exactly lost again at wimbledon and mcenroe at mcenroe had had some controversial moments some eruptions temporary eruptions early in the tournament and they 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 really wanted to some of the officials wanted to have him thrown out of the tournament. And some of the people from the ATP, including Butch Buckles, had to persuade the Wimbledon management not to do that and to allow him to play on. But John, when he played Borg in the final, there was there were no there was no volatility volatility whatsoever. He was calm as can be because he felt he had to be when he played Borg. And it was a performance and he wanted in four. But just to put eighty eighty four in perspective it 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 it, it you know, to go 82 and three, to win 13 tournaments, to, to, you know, have these three isolated losses. The only, yes, two of the three were significant losses. One being in that loss to, in the finals of the French and the other being in the Davis Cup final. But still it was, it was a, 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 a riveting and, and astonishing campaign from beginning to end for him. And he closed it out by winning the masters. And so, which was a, another big triumph for him at the very end of the year. It, 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 it'll, it'll always be remembered as one of the great seasons in, in the modern era of pro tennis. Where would you overall open era? Would you rank it in the top three or four? Oh time? yeah, I would. I would. I don't. I don't. It's hard to rank anything much above. And now that another great season, but was he? He had it was Jimmy Connors in '74. Won 99 of 103 matches and won 14 tournaments, and he won three of the four majors and couldn't play in. Roland Garros, that was pretty remarkable, too. But I think what Ma- the McEnroe's competition was tougher in 84. And Connors won a lot of tournaments that were on a, were, which would be comparable today to ATP 250s. And so his, his record was padded by that. Despite the fact that he won the two biggest at Wimbledon and the Open and, and Australia as well, it's, I'd say McEnroe's 84 was greater. And then I, it, we could argue about where it ranks up against the Djokovic in 2011 or 2015 or 
There's some others that are comparable, but I would say none better than what McEnroe did in 84. I would agree. Yeah. And uh, I guess it's a it's a really a good spot as well to move on to under XC 99. Uh, as you, you mentioned as well that um, uh, McEnroe had a big downfall and never was the same after um, 84. And we have Agassi who had somewhat of the same story, but he has kind of like a his Cinderella story. He came back in, uh, in 99. He essentially turned the tables on his career. So how how can we compare Agassi's 99 to Agassi's uh, rest of the 90s and that resurgence in his career, really? Well, it, it, resurgence is the word. I mean, he he'd had a he'd had a great some other great seasons, 92 when he won his first major at Wimbledon. And, and he had a great 94 winning his first U.S. Open and up and down years. But 99 was was his finest season because that's when he became the fifth player ever to win the all four Grand Slam tournaments in the same year, in, in a career, not the same year, in a career. Not with, so to do a career Grand Slam and come from two sets down in the French Open final against Medvedev was, was a... a a wonderful accomplishment and he'd been thinking about not even playing the French because he had some shoulder issues, but his coach Brad Gilbert talked him into it. And then he goes to Wimbledon and plays quite beautifully at Wimbledon before losing in the finals to a top of the line, Pete Sampras. And what I think might've been the signature match of Pete Sampras's career. I really believe it was when he beat Agassi three, four and five in the final. But then again, then Agassi, after taking a couple couple more losses to Sampras over the summer of 99, comes back and wins the U.S. Open. Sampras had a pull out of the Open, and Agassi beat Todd Martin in a five-set final. That was, And then he lost in the final to Sampras in the year-end championships. But it was a considering what, you know, what had happened to him post-95. That's what made 99 so great. He lost to Sampras in the 95 U.S. Open final, which was a pivotal match in both of their careers because— that was essentially settling who would be number one for that year. And Agassi had beaten Sampras in Australia. Sampras had won Wimbledon. So this one was sort of, it, it, there was so much riding on the outcome there. And then after that 95 season, he went into a tailspin. And he did okay in 96 and won an Olympic gold. But by and large, disappointing year. 97 played very little, didn't do well. 98 started working his way back. So to do what he did in 99 and win two, two majors, and finish the year number one, I, I, I think he would always say it was his greatest greatest campaign ever. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, people talk about, uh, I, I can see the two years they bring up is 95 and 99. And to me, you know, 99 is even more impressive just given his ability to, you know, bounce back from playing all those challenges at one point, dropping to 141 in the world in November of 97. Exactly. exactly, 97 goes down to 141 but by you know then he had himself back in the top six the next year it was it was a great recovery and then 1999 he's back at the very top yeah. now i yeah i think it, it was a very rewarding season for him in so many ways because he had lost the roland garros finals you know yeah. he had, 90 he had and 91 lost courier and gomez, gomez. In, in 90 and 91 and i think he had believed he might have thought that time had passed him by there because LeClay was not his favorite. He was very good on it, but he preferred hardcourt. So I think he may have surprised himself with what he did there, but he had such a, he was on such a high when he came to Wimbledon that he goes all the way to the finals there and then played some great tennis in New York to win the U.S. Open. Because Todd Martin played one of, one of his most impressive career matches to go up two sets to one against Agassi in the U.S. Open final, and Agassi wore him down and 
one in five sets. Yeah, and just so to I, obviously we're not we can't put this here. This was not a this was not a a Macano '84 or a Connors '74, yeah. but it was still the season of his career. It was a culmination of a lot of. It was a great comeback season in many ways because he had won no majors in '96, '7, or '8, and here he is pulling off two, and uh, especially winning the winning Roland Garros. And so I think it, it, it for him it personally it was a it was a, a shining season to be sure. Yeah, I guess it, it's a it's really the point here because the, the season is not. Um... It's not probably like a top five that you would make, but um, considering his, his past years and uh, what he did, and even uh, considering, for example, uh, McEnroe 84, he, he did great against his rivals, um, but Agassi did pretty poorly against Sampras that year. Um, yes, he did. Only once, but that was still a massive season for him, for his career. And really, Roland Garros definitely was well, the, what impressive. Was, what was interesting at the end, though, was I think he wanted to kind of I would say wanted to underline what he may have regarded as his supremacy for the year. And in the round robin of the, of the year end championships, the ATP year end championships, he beat Sampras handily. But then when they met again in the finals and it was much more, uh, much more at stake, it was Sampras who rose to the occasion and beat him. So that was something of a dampener for Agassi who had already lost it to, to Sampras in the Wimbledon final and in hard courts over the summer in LA and Cincinnati. So to lose to him again in the year, but it still didn't tarnish what was a, a really uh, extraordinary season for him in every way. Just a great year. Yeah. And what was also so extraordinary is he made four slam finals in a row there by uh, winning the French, getting to the finals of Wimbledon, winning the U.S., and then he eventually got Sampras in the semis of the Australian the next year and won yeah. Australia. 2000, that's true, that's true. And so he was one match away from the, potentially the Agassi yeah. slam. You're right, you're right. I mean, it was a great stretch. Obviously, we're talking about a different year there in 2000, but he, he played a great great match against Sampras. It was it was hanging in the balance. He was down two sets to one and, and two points from losing that match, and then he came back and won the four-set tiebreak and ran away with a fifth. Yeah, it was a great stretch for him, although he didn't really keep it going the rest of 2000, but we'll Let's yeah. leave that one aside. I, I, I still think that it's a season well worth talking about and one that Agassi would always say was uh, gratifying, the most gratifying season of his career for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the, the things that I'm thinking about as well is how um, 99 is pretty close to our, our time in a, in a way, like a, a, all of the, 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 the Grand Slams were already in the, the current um, surfaces that they are right now. But there was still some difference. So, uh, Servant Volley was still pretty much king as Sampras is casing point. Um, so how, how different was it like for Agassi as a, as a baseliner, really, playing that in that time in 99 as well? He didn't, he didn't feel like he had to change his game that much. First of all, he was never that comfortable at the net. He, the technique was never that great. And, and and he felt like if he was returning well, and he was such an aggressive returner, different kind of returner in some ways from Djokovic. He didn't get as many returns back. He didn't have as much reach. But boy, if he if he read your serve, he could blast return to serve winners. And his serve by then had improved I I immensely as well. He had a much better, especially first serve, had much more beef on it. So I think he felt like he didn't have that many adjustments. But he also knew that if Sampras was on, uh, he was going to be, he was in for some trouble. 
especially on the grass. So I remember him saying, after losing Wimbledon final that year, said something to the effect of the debut Collins and the well. I guess it's to be he knew what Tampa's could do to him on a grass court, all things being equal. And he caught Pete not on an all things being equal day. He caught him at his very best. For sure, I always thought of uh, Sampras, and I always thought of the Sampras and Agassi rivalry in majors. That uh, you know, Sampras often had Agassi's number at the Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. He was six and zero in their rivalry there. But then Andre would always flip it at the French and at the Australian Open. So I mean, well, given that Agassi had the four majors and he won the career slam, I mean, how do you kind of see those two careers? And well, I would only say this. There was only one of those that you mentioned. He beat him once at the French in a quarter. Yeah. And he beat him a couple of times in Australia, yes, but one, only once in the final. So the five right. major finals they play, he loses four. They played the U.S. Open four times when you add in their, their epic quarter uh, of 2001. He yeah. never once beat him in what you could regard as a neutral setting on hard courts in New York, a place where Agassi loved to perform. And then, as you alluded to, Two losses to Pete at Wimbledon, most importantly, the final in 99, but also a quarter in 93. So to me, yes, Agassi, I mean, historically, he, 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 among the open era players, he belongs right up there, uh, given that he has a career grand slam. But versus Sampras, I don't think that I think there's a big gap, despite the fact that Pete did not win. There's a big gap. And Sampras proved in their in their biggest matches that he was the better. Not to diminish Agassi, but I think those are those are the facts. I would completely agree. Yeah. Um, additionally, also, just I just really want to go back to the French Open final with Medvedev, um, just because I, I also read a really interesting article uh, about Medvedev uh, almost wanting to retire or thinking about retiring, and and they met at a he met Agassi at a bar in Monte Carlo uh, in April, and he was saying, you know, I'm about to retire, and you know, what am I going to do? And you know, Ag Agassi kind of gave him a pep talk and cheered him up and said, you know, it's all good. I've come back. I've struggled the last two years and here I am. And, you know, Medvedev had him at two sets to love up. And I believe there was a rain delay in the third set. And Brad uh, Gilbert really, the rain uh, delay him and, and Gilbert was able to talk to Agassi a exactly. little bit. His coach get him five. But what's ironic about that story is that Gilbert had talked Agassi into playing the French Open, not into quitting all together, but there was always this chance that if, if, Gilbert had not persuaded Agassi that neither one of those guys would have been in that final. Medvedev also beat Sampras early in that that same French Open. So, and the first two sets he was de it was devastating. One and two, he just crushed him the first two, and and maybe it was too easy. And then maybe he just started. I think he just got too conscious of what he was on the verge of accomplishing. And guys at his level are sometimes a little afraid of winning, if it, if if you can believe it. So they, there's actually a fear of winning. They can't quite believe that they're in that position. And Agassi, I think, somewhere deep inside him knew that. And it was a, it was a, a, a really spirited comeback he made. And he deserved it, to be sure, to come back and win in five. Absolutely. And just to add, um, in the third set, he was serving at four all. Yeah. And he missed, a, he missed his first serve. So a lot yeah. of pressure on that. And second serve. And I think he came up with a beautiful forehand drop volley. He did. That was set up by a very deep second serve. I mean, you know, not a couple inches from the line. I mean, it was gut, it was gutsy second serve that set that set that up for him. But yeah, it, he could have been in, found himself with Medvedev serving for the match. That was a very important game. And after that, there was never too much doubt that he was going to win once he won the third set. I never really felt like 
I, I, I thought Medvedev looked quite deflated after that third set. An interesting parallel, another Medvedev 20 years later, losing a final uh, in a fifth set, 6-4. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, uh, Daniel Medvedev, absolutely. Same name, different country. But anyway... Uh, one of the things that I've been looking at in terms of, uh, well, you mentioned how Agassi have completed the, the French Open, I mean, the, the career slam with the French Open. And um, this kind of has become a, like a sort of like a staple of the great players of uh, who can complete the, the career Grand Slam. And um, how, do you, how would you say like this, for example, compares with um, Rod Laver in 69 when he... He became the first and only man to ever win the, the career, the, the slam in the same year. Well, he, Labor had won his first, you know, he, Labor had won his first in 62 as an amateur. The one in 69 was a much bigger deal. We had Don Budge in third as well, and Lil Mo Connolly in 53, and Margaret Mar Court eventually won it in 70, and Steffi Graf in 88. Pretty elite group. But it's, to get to the point of Labor in 69, it's... It's only it's the first full year of the major in open tennis uh, because we started with the French Open in '68, so the Australian didn't have an open event in '68. So here's the first full available shot for anybody the Grand Slam. So Laver in the first full year of open tennis '69 set out to do this, and 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 the Australian was at the start of the year, but he had an epic match against Tony Roach. In the semifinals that he won in five, and uh, and that led to you know, you know led the way to him beat Andre Semenyo in the finals, and then he goes to Paris and he lost to Rosewall the year before, and this time he turned the tables and beat Rosewall in the finals, and then he goes to Wimbledon where he beats Arthur Ashe and John Newcomb, and he finally finishes it off at the U.S. Open at Forest Hills on the grass. These are the days three of the four are on the grass, and he beat Arthur Ashe there again. Arthur was the defending champion, beat him in the semis and beat. Roach in the final, which was very satisfying because Roach had given him a lot of problems throughout the year. It, uh, to me, if you if you saw these players that Labor competed against at that time, like Roach, like uh, uh, John Newcomb, he he had very tough competition at the top. It wasn't that he was that much better than those guys. So I think it was it it, it has to go down as one. Of the, we have to mention that among the great years because altogether too, he won seventeen tournaments that year labor so in over 100 matches it was against fierce competition and it was un he was under enormous pressure because he had this goal to do it and he pulled it off he pulled it off as only he could and it, I, i was lucky enough to see him win the last two of those at, at wimbledon in the u.s and they were he was he was a joy to watch in those days rod labor hmm. that's amazing i keep sometimes keeping uh looking at trying to see if I can find some uh, clips of him playing on YouTube. It's it's really hard to find like a full matches and uh, it's uh, it's it's tough. But yeah, well, from what I can see. Was a, a... <laughs> he was a shot maker. Labor was a real shot maker. Left-hander, big forearm, not a big serve, but well, well placed. He could kick it. He could slice it, get in volley very effectively behind it. But I think the standout feature of his game to me was the passing shots he'd make on the run. This, these spectacular winners he could hit from anywhere on the court, and that that could demote his, his opponents. And he had a particularly, you know, he had a, a, a classic lefty topspin forehand, but it was his backhand that I think was this was the standout because he could slice it or come over it. And he and uh, Labor was just a, a he was 
very versatile and very crafty player. Yeah. And if we, if we come back to uh, 99 and the, the, the career Grand Slam, uh, you mentioned that all of a lot of the Grand Slams were on um, on grass at that time, three, three out of the four. Um, so how would you how would you say you rank uh, the even with that um, difference in surfaces uh, in the career slam? Would you say it's is it harder to complete complete a career slam um, in the three differences different surfaces, or is it still the 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 hardest achievement was to labors to get to win all of them for well, in the same year? Yeah, that's the thing. You're doing it in the same year. So if you don't win the first, you wait till the next year. That's what made the accomplishments so uh, so mighty. Is that uh, you know you, you you had to you had to keep coming through when it counted, and and you don't just start it. You don't just start off when you when you feel like it and go into the next year. I mean, obviously Djokovic has done that, and that is also a great accomplishment. What he did in 2015 and 16 to win four in a row, but it's not as difficult as winning four in the same year, even if it is only on two surfaces. And when you consider that he had a deal with the likes of Ken Rosewell on clay and John Newcomb on grass and Tony Roach on grass and Arthur Ashe and Dennis Ralston and the young Stan Smith, there were a lot of formidable uh, opponents that he had and he, he dealt with all of them. And I, I, so I think it was, we have to mention that as, a, as another of the great, of the great seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely... So we got to go to Federer now. Is Vansh have anything else? Yeah, uh, if Vansh doesn't have anything to add, any any questions that you might have on the on the Agassi still? Um, I think we've basically we've covered covered, uh, covered Agassi, and we talked about how it 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 propelled his career to go on and have a long, uh, you know, still pretty great career in the two thousands. Yes, yeah, yeah. Which one? Federer. Yeah, which was for me quite interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just a quick comment there. He, he, it's those wasted. Ninety-seven was almost. Ninety-six was largely wasted. Ninety-seven was almost totally wasted. And ninety-eight, he kind of got back to being serious. So I think the fact that he had a couple of years in his twenties where he didn't really apply himself was one of the reasons why he played so beautifully up into his mid-thirties. Is that he, he, you know, there was there was more incentive and energy left. I mean, Sampras by thirty-one had had it. Edberg at thirty had had it. But Agassi had that something propelling him and knew and knew that he had wasted some time and they hadn't really given it given it his all uh during part of his 20s so he made up for it in his 30s how crucial was his uh relationship with uh, steffi graf at that time after they both won the french in 99 to kind of have her as a rock to lean on and eventually you know i'd imagine that you have given him some positive energy too no i don't think there's any well. And, and I, I think she she inspired him, and I think she encouraged him, and and I think he used to, you know, he ended up with eight majors. But I'll tell you a quick funny story: is that after he won his sixth, somebody on the tour congratulated one of the guys I know who works on the tour, and he saw him the next time he saw him, he says, "Congratulations on number six. And, and he said, "No, no, it's not number six; it's number twenty-eight," meaning that he and Steffi together had twenty-eight. That was the yeah. kind of, that was how he looked at it. Now it was all in the family, wow. but I think she, I think she really did inspire him, and she had a totally different temperament, and her game was different, and obviously she didn't have a two hander, and you know she had that incredible uh, inside out forehand and and a, and a good serve. But but the bottom line is, I think he really admired what she did in in her career, and 
and she felt like she could help him to still play great tennis. And was there's no doubt that was it. Only the two of them could tell us. But my, judging from my vantage point, I'd say she she made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess like this is also a great because. Um, to segue into Federer's seasons, because uh, honestly, when I looked in the um, early big three when Federer was about 226, um, and he was moving on to 2012 with all the doubts, and he was uh, in his early, early 30s, I would look into Agassi and imagine like him, the 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 epitome of like going deep into your 30s was for me, Andre Agassi's um, 35. Um, but obviously, like back into Federer's basic um, agreed prime in 2006. Um, that was one of the two years that he won three, uh, three of the four Grand Slams. Uh, so how would you, how would you say Federer's 2006 season was? Like, what was his, his biggest accomplishment? How does it rank uh, amongst the greatest? Well, only slightly better than his 2005. Yeah. <laughs> 2005, the year before, he didn't win, he, he didn't make all the finals. He lost to Nadal in the semis of the... He was beaten by Nadal and and Safin. That you know he he he, he had a, he 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 had only a slightly less great season in that. No, he didn't make all four finals, but he still only lost four matches in two thousand five, and he still won you know Wimbledon and the Open. And so I think that that was that was a a, a great year. And and he uh, he had some problems with an injury late in this season that maybe caused him to lose in the year end finals to Nalbandian, but. But 2006 was was stunning because uh, there he goes 92 and five, and uh, so he played even more and only lost one more match, and and he did get to all the finals and he did win. You know he did win. You know in 2006 he he was even more more. It was even better because he won three of the four. He didn't have to settle for two, and uh, almost put himself in a position to win the French. Because he, he he lost to Nadal after winning the first set six one, and in this, early in the second set, Federer had forty love on his serve, and Nadal came back and broke him, and that proved to be critical. And eventually, Nadal beat him in the tiebreak in the fourth set. But Federer was off to a blazing start, and I think had he won that match, he might well have won the Grand Slam. I don't think he would have gotten nervous at Wimbledon in the Open. I think we might have seen him join the the Grand Slammers, as we call them, but. But Nadal, of course, never lost him on that court. And it took a lot to, to shake Rafa and make him worry too much. And, and, and Federer was not able to sustain that early form. But boy, he was great at the other majors. And, you know, he had won the, the Open over Agassi the year before. And in 06, he beat Roddick in a nice final there. And he just was great all around in 06. So there was no doubting himself at all. I, I think if you asked him when his career is over, he'd say that was... Would he say he was the best tennis he ever played? I don't know if he'd say that, but he, he would have to say it was the most consistent success he's ever had. Yeah, I mean, I would uh, I would agree since, I mean, 2004 to 2007, I'd say is yeah, peak yeah. years. And you mentioned, I mean, 2005, four losses, but in two of those matches, he had match points against yeah. Agassi and Monte Carlo. And then Safin, obviously, you referred to. That where he had the match point in the tiebreak. Yeah, the Safin one was a killer, and he tried a tweener. You know, he chased yeah. out a lob from Safin, and he should have thrown up a lob himself. And it wasn't actually like Roger. Yes, he loved hitting the tweener, but not on such a big point, not with so much riding. And I think if he could have thrown up a decent lob, having 
after Safin had lobbed over him, maybe he maybe he gets back into that point. We'll never know. But that was crushing, and it was in the semis. And then Nadal beat him in the semis of the France that year. So yes, the, 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 that wasn't as in '06 was nothing like that. Only the loss in the finals uh, to Nadal in Paris, which is more fitting that they play in the final. And then he won all the other three, and pretty convincingly for the most part. A little shaky against Baghdadis in the Australian final, but overall he was he was just as as impenetrable as I've ever seen him. Yeah. Especially like if you consider um, two big losses to, I guess maybe three big losses to Nadal in that year. The Rome t- 2006, probably like the biggest one. Yeah. And to win in four sets against Nadal in the final in Wimbledon, his kind of like home court, which he would still own for another year. Um, it, it must have felt really good for him. Just to interrupt you, yeah. Nadal was, yeah. Uh, was thrilled to be in the final, didn't really think he could be. It yeah, wasn't until the next year that he was. What's that? I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, just losing to Rafa, uh, I think, five times in a row, uh, heading into that Wimbledon final, I, even though it was on grass and it was Nadal's uh, first time and he beat Agassi along the way, I was going to say that he didn't really quite believe that he was no, up to the task that day. It, and he obviously, he got bageled in the first set. And he managed to make competitive sets two and three. But. Yeah, he got a set later. You're right. He did He did not believe. And it was one thing to beat all the other guys, the Baghdadises and Andre's last Wimbledon. And, but it, he knew against Federer, he's dealing with one of, the, one of the great grass court players of all time. So he he didn't, in, in his mind, he was not ready for that. But still, yeah. it still was a really solid performance for, from Federer. And that's really pretty much the way he played that whole year. I think he was supremely confident that year. And as you just alluded to, he was in the midst of this four-year stretch. But although in 07, he was a lot less convincing in 07 than he was yeah. in 06. And he scraped by Nadal in the Wimbledon final. And mm-hmm. Djokovic wasted a five-set points in the first set of the U.S. Open final and two more set points in the second set before losing in straight. But you could sense that Roger was now more vulnerable than he had, had been in the previous three years. Definitely. And then, you know, we get to 2008 and the mono starts. And Yeah. Just to add what you're saying, it was a great effort to, to get pulverized by Nadal in the Roland Garros final, come back all the way from two, yeah. two sets to love to be within a couple of points of winning that Wimbledon final before losing at 9-7. Fifth was, was a really gallant effort for Federer, who had won five in a row. He lost his title the right way. He made Nadal earn it in the end. And it, Obviously, it was one of the great matches of all time, if not the greatest. Sorry. Okay. I go back, though. You were, I don't, finish your thought. I was just uh, going to refer back to the to the Rome final because I think that match is one of the most important in the Federer-Nadal rivalry, um, given that it was the longest match they ever played. It was five hours and five minutes. And, you know, Rogers never won the Rome Masters. And he he was twice a point away from doing it and he ended up losing the tiebreak. Yeah, but he missed forehands on both match points, you know. It, it, and his forehand, he didn't miss it much in those days. It was usually when he sensed an opening for a winner, he could make it. But he may have pressed a little in each case. And then, mm-hmm. like you said, 5-3. And then at 5-3 in that tiebreak, he missed a cross-court forehand in the net tape. You know, and he was, so he wasn't going actually even for a winner, but... Maybe a little bit tight there, and Nadal, you know, won the next three points from there to complete it. Yeah, that was a, it. Was a very important match because it might have given him the encouragement to 
maybe he would have had an, enough confidence to get through the French final after winning the easy first set. But with that Rome match sort of looming in the back of his mind, lurking, I think it was very difficult for him once Nadal made his move in the second set. You're right. Rome was, Rome was a critical match in, in that part of the rivalry. Then the next critical match in the rivalry would be from the opposite end of the spectrum was Federer coming from 3-1 down on the fifth to defeat yeah. Nadal in the 2017 Australian final. Because if you look at that, he then beat him three more times that year. And, you know, he'd already beaten him in 15. He eventually won five in a row in six of the last seven, including Wimbledon last year. So, so it's astounding what's what happened in that stretch, considering what Nadal had done against him up until then. Yeah, it, it kind of feels almost like exercising a ghost of Nadal, like looming yeah. uh, over and his head. Stretch, in the same stretch, you know, Djokovic has been beating both of them. And so you, you can't, it's not as if Nadal, and Nadal has been winning majors in this period. And so it wasn't as, as if Nadal has gone into decline, but I think Federer had suddenly got in his head. And it was a role reversal, because for so long, he sense that Roger was, had the opposite, the, yeah. Roger was the one nagging doubts and going out there not sure he could do it. And suddenly by Wimbledon last year, you could sense that Nadal, even though he'd beaten Federer at the French for his only win against him over the last few years, he, you could sense that he was, he was, there was a, an apprehension on his part and it showed a lot in the last couple of sets of that match. I mean, yeah, I mean, a couple of things here is just uh, to give, I mean, some credit to Federer as well for uh, bouncing back from that Rome defeat and the French final defeat and Obviously, he'd lost in Monte Carlo, and, you know, the losses were build, piling up against Rafa, and even in 2006 and seven, I think he won five of the next seven in that rivalry, because he did he did have a winning record in 2007, and he eventually did beat him on clay in Hamburg. Yeah, that was, a, a, I, I don't put much stock in that one, to be honest, because it, that was, they were both exhausted. Nadal went down 6-11 the third, I believe, and he was just, he yeah. was, he was just beat. And then he still came back and beat Roger handily in the in a comfortable force that French final. But no, I think Federer's attitude was always good. I don't think he was, I don't think he was pessimistic. But I think he was during those stages he was just a, a bit uh, confused. And he would ask people like Darren Cahill, "What do I do to beat this guy?" He really wanted to figure out what what he could do to turn it around. And of course, what eventually did it was the improvement in his backhand that we saw in seventeen. With the back end was nowhere near as good back in 06, 07 as it was in 17 and, and 18. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess one of the, the points is uh, in uh, maybe Federer, all, all the way even through 04 to 07, maybe even like going through 05 to 07 even, um, is that Nadal is basically the, the one rival that people associate with Federer. But how... how um, dominant was him like was Federer against his other rivals at the time how how much more comfortable is he playing against the Nalbandians and even uh, yeah well the Nalbandian Hewitt they they were trouble for him when he was younger for the most part he he turned it around against all those guys he really had it really wasn't until we saw Djokovic come along that's what changed everything he suddenly had two serious rivals and not one and Djokovic, you know, is still Roger had the upper hand and against Novak for quite a while, say pre 2010. But it, it it all turned the last decade. It turned dramatically. But it was really not until Djokovic emerged, in my view, that Federer felt more. Until then, he was only worried about Rafa. Period. Yeah, and it, that's, I think it's yeah. just interesting if you go back and you look at through these different stages of his career because. 
I mean, we look at 98 to 2003 when, you know, Federer, you know, kind of came up and he was idolizing, he idolized Sampras and he was playing a more servant volley type brand. He was, you know, still trying to figure out and piece these ingredients of his game and, you know, put it together and kind of blend them. And he was, he was really having to work very hard to put that game together until you get to kind of 2003 when he wins the first Wimbledon in 2004. So how amazing is it that, you know, both Djokovic and Federer kind of, for Djokovic it was 2005 to 2010 and for Federer it was 98 to 2003. But how amazing is it that Nadal, you know, as soon as he came onto the tour pretty much in 2003 and four, already hit, started to hit his prime and hit the ground running. Oh yeah, it's true. He did. He hit the ground running. There's no two. He, he was the most mature of the three at a, at, a, at a young age. Neither one of them was, neither Roger nor uh, Novak was nearly as mature as Nadal uh, if you compare them all as 19-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Varsity, do you have questions that you, you would like to ask as well, like in terms of that? Yeah, I, and and the, the, the 2006, even um, the season. Yeah, I mean, I've often seen uh, articles and, you know, pundits and analysts compare kind of 2006 Federer to, you know, but closer to another season like 2015 Djokovic, say, for instance. And, you know, people like to compare and see that, oh, you know, Federer went 92-5 and five and he made 16 out of 17 finals and, you know, obviously all the records. I mean, where do you think 2006 would rank in terms of certainly in the 2000s or in the open era of all time? Well, I, I, I it's so hard to gauge. I, I don't think... I don't think I can put it there with Makino 84, and I'm not so sure I would put it there with Djok- with Djokovic in 11 or 15. Maybe close, close, yeah. slightly behind because I don't think he was challenged as much. It takes nothing away to win 92 matches in a year. I mean, it, it is an astounding accomplishment, and to be in all four finals and lose only five matches and win the year end. I mean, it was it's certainly uh, his signature year. Would I put it quite up there with some of the other? Maybe not. I, I certainly wouldn't put it with McEnroe, and I'm not sure about the, the two Djokovic years, because I think that they maybe the, the competition was a bit tougher. But it was he, yeah. he did every, he did everything that he could have possibly asked of himself and more, and it was no disgrace to lose the French final. And his standards were incredibly high that whole year, and that and that I think was the peak of his forehand. I don't think he's, he's ever hit his forehand better than he did that year. Combination of being able to hit outright winners and not miss very much and just dominate matches with the serve setting up the forehand. I don't think he's ever done that more persuasively than he did in 06. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I have two questions and they're kind of like related to each other. Uh, there's a lot of conversations, a lot, like especially if you go on Twitter and uh, people just kind of uh, wasting their time on social media on that. That saying that, say, for example, um, Federer's prime was during a weak era. For, for, yeah, that's, like, for that's, example. What yeah. Say, that's what I was trying to say. That I, I yeah, don't yeah. Can really blame that. It's not his fault. But yeah. that, that stretch from 04 to 07, you know, aside from Rafa and then Novak emerged in 07 and beat him in Canada and lost him in the U.S. Open final. So he was now starting to make his move. But it was a period where Federer was able to to fairly comfortably dominate the scene. And, and he wasn't, of course, impressed as much as he would be later. But, but go back to your point. Go ahead. Yeah, no, but it, the, it's just like a follow-up question. And 
after 2006, uh, we see Nadal going to um, five sets in Wimbledon, and then uh, post that, like uh, 2008, a big change in uh, in the powers of, of tennis, if you will, of Nadal coming back to going to number one for the first time after 160 weeks at number two. And would you say that, uh, and that kind of maybe goes to, would say both of you in a sense, uh, 2006 Federer, is it a pivotal moment in, um, in tennis? Did that season raise the bar so that the Djokovic and Nadal would come in the scene and form the big three with the, the biggest winners of all time in the, in the male circuit? Well, I, I, it's, that's hard to gauge that. It's really mm -hmm. hard to gauge it. I mean, Federer rimming with confidence after the previous two years, for sure. Having done as well as he did in 04 and 05, and he, he now thought he could dominate the game. And he also knew that he didn't have too many uh, too many threats out there. He really felt, aside from Rafa, who was now improving rapidly on the other surfaces and not just clay, but he certainly, did what, he certainly didn't think he was going to lose to him in that Wimbledon final. So it's hard to say. I... I I think the more interesting year is 07, when, when Federer's still in all those major finals, but suddenly now he almost loses to Nadal in the Wimbledon final, and he manages to pull it, to play a great fifth set and wins it. And, and he has he struggles with Djokovic in the first set of the Open final, and again in the second. That could have been trouble. But the signs were there that, the, that things were starting to change, and it, it carried over into... So I, I, don't, I find 07 to be the, the most interesting of those years in the sense that Djokovic was now entering the conversation and Nadal was yeah, that much better on the grass than he had been the year before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, quick, of course, yeah. A quick word, though, before, cause we're, before we wrap up is I yeah. do want to pay homage to Nadal's 2008 season mm -hmm. yeah. because and 2010. 2008 because he won... The French again, so now he's winning his fourth French in a row. He goes on and wins his first Wimbledon in the epic over Federer, and then he wins the Olympic Games over the summer. Finally ran out of energy and lost to Andy Murray in the semis of the U.S. Open, but he broke to the, he made it to the top, got to number one, won two majors plus an Olympic gold. It was pretty remarkable. And then yes. 2010, he won the last three majors of the year. Won yeah. the He won the French. He got his title back, having lost to Sodling the year before. He won Wimbledon over Burdich, and then he wins. He wins the U.S. Open over Djokovic. I thought to win those three majors in a row and be clearly number one was was a an excellent campaign from Nadal as well. Yeah, yeah especially if you consider that. I, for one, was one of those people that was thinking, like, maybe is Nadal ever going to win at the U.S. Open? And he does it so convincingly after winning. Um, two straight majors and then complete through the third of the US Open so that was that was a yeah. better that, that couldn't be a better way to uh... <laughs> yeah exactly and he'd had such disappointment in New York the loss to Murray in when he thought maybe he was ready to win not really that healthy in 09 when he got crushed by Del Potro in the semis so he'd had some hard luck in New York and he got injured against David Ferrer in 07 there He, he and Blake had killed him, and he had some Blake and Roddick had killed him in prior years. So he'd had a hard time, but gradual process of building up to it. So I think that 2010 Open was was one of the most satisfying tournaments of his career, and it was the culmination of uh, perhaps his his finest season. Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about Rafa, I think three seasons come to my mind. 2008, obviously that stretch that Steve just mentioned, from basically Hamburg winning Hamburg, winning French, winning Queens, winning Wimbledon, winning Toronto, 
losing yeah. the semis to, in Cincinnati to Djokovic and then coming back and beating him at the Olympics in the semis and then beating Gonzalez, winning the gold. And then obviously you mentioned the U.S. Open. You, you know, he was burned out by then. He, he was but, burned, no doubt. But then I think that was the prime stretch, best stretch of his career by far. And then you mentioned 2010, but I also think 2012 and th- 2012 when he took those, when he lost to Rosal in the in the second round at Wimbledon and then he yeah. took those six, seven months off and comes back and, you know, is a little slow to start off and loses a final to Zabios in 2013 and skips the Australian and then to manage and to come back and climb all the way to number one, uh, winning two majors again and defeating Djokovic again for the last time on hard court. Yeah, no, those were great, great wins. Not to mention that he beat Djokovic in that five setter in the semis at Roland Garros. The, the right, best. right, yes. No, no I, I actually was best Novak has ever played him, even though he ended up beating him there once later, a couple oh. of years later. That The match that he played against him in 13 was spectacular. And then Rafa then wins it over Ferrer and absolutely comes to New York, beats Djokovic again. Uh-huh. Uh, that 13 was a great year, no doubt about it. Very, very rewarding year emotionally to come back and do that after what happened in 12. I agree. Absolutely. And it was fascinating in the Djokovic and Nadal rivalry as well. When you think of the three matches, three best matches, the 2012 Australian final, the 2018 Wimbledon semifinal and the 2013 French final. I thought it was very interesting how after the French Open win that Nadal had over Djokovic in 2013, he mentioned that, you know, I should have won Australia and Novak should have won this. Exactly. And that's that classic. That's what makes him such a commendable play, guy is that he's so honest that way and, and to say that as opposed to, you know, I should have won them both is that he realized that he, you know, here's here's Novak up a break in that fifth set, you know, on the verge of five, three, you know, five, three and trying to get to five, three in the fifth and Rafa has escaped. Then that famous point when Djokovic touched the net. I mean, it was. That was a heartbreaking loss for Djokovic and so fair-minded of Nadal. And it reminded me of later that year, I, I, I'd done a book on the greatest tennis matches of all time. And Djokovic and Nadal, I had, the cover was Djokovic and Nadal from their 2012 Australian final. Because that match made the book, just before we had to close the book, that match was played and I got it in. And I, I gave it to Nadal at the 2013 Open because of that period that Andre just mentioned where, you know, he hadn't hadn't been around you know he took all that time off after the Rousseau loss so I hadn't seen Nadal and I gave I, I gave him the book and he said I and I showed him inside that I had ranked the the match with Federer at number one on my list and he said that was a great match he said but then he pointed to the cover he said but this was a great match too I don't know any other great champion that would have said that about a match that they lost. That he lost, yeah. Wow. But he, he yeah. was able to look at that as he was able to look at the 2011 U.S. Open when he lost in four, but be very proud of the one set that he took. And that carried him into the 12 Australian was with a little more confidence and he nearly beat him. Nadal to me is unique in that way, in that he can allude to a what could have been a devastating loss for anybody else and say, yes, but that was a great match too. Yeah. And uh, I guess on, on that note, like we guess you can, can start wrapping up as, uh, as uh, going into Nadal. It's kind of like really it's a lot to... Uh, Nadal is a great champion, has always been. Like uh, I've learned uh, as a Djokovic fan to see him uh, with uh, different eyes as uh, one of the greatest guys. And those uh, guys are 
really the owners of amazing seasons and uh i'm sure maybe hopefully 2021 is going to be a complete season a full season and hopefully they're still going to give us some some nice matches to end up uh such a troublesome 2020 such a yeah such difficult times but yeah this is this is all the time that we've got and uh, i would thank you so much steve um for for being here with us for bringing your bringing your wisdom and your knowledge in the in the in those seasons and your insight thank you vansh for uh being here again and uh all of your um studying that you do all of your interest for tennis is, is great uh so yeah thank you guys so much for being here with me today well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking with both of you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much as well from me. And it was a, it was a pleasure to finally speak with both you and Steve again. And, you know, I think we we hit on a lot of great points. And I'm, I'm sure the listeners will really will really enjoy it. And I'm really looking forward to reading Steve's book. Yeah, same. Speaking of which, uh, just just a reminder to people that Steve's book is coming in early September, and uh, Steve's got some really really great content in that uh, book. Is Pete Sampras' greatness revisited? As I made a mistake in the first uh, bit of this podcast, but it's revisited. And Sampras is one of my favorite of all time. And yeah, just go be on the lookout to Steve's books coming out. I'm sure I'm going to get a copy for myself. So anything you want to add on, on this, on your book, just to get people a little bit more excited about it, Steve? Oh, I th well, I think they'll really enjoy a lot of things about it. His own reflections, Sampras's many reflections on, on his greatest triumphs, but also the, the observations of all the guys that he played against, like Makino and Lendl and, and uh, Rafter and Edberg and Wielander and so many players. And then I got some very good things from Novak Djokovic about how much he idolized Sampras growing up and the way he's been inspired by getting to know him a little bit more in recent years and picking his brain. So I think it's I think tennis fans will really enjoy it because they'll, they'll be able to see the incredible reverence that these other players have for Pete and they'll be able to get a maybe a different view of Sampras as, as he's in his late 40s looking back on the prime of his career. Mm. All right, so that's all the time that we've got. Thank you guys again for being here, and uh, yeah, follow me on social media. the uh, The descriptions are on the 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 handles on the description. So Bivanch, and uh, is there is there a link that I could add up for you for you, Steve? Something that you have on the like a latest article or one of your books? No, I think we're good. I think we're good. Sure. Awesome. So yeah, thank you guys again. I'll be ending this here and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I'm going to have a lot of editing to do to make this a little bit shorter, but yeah, it was amazing and looking forward to the next uh, episodes and yeah, have a great one guys. Bye-bye. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details.